Vacation Dysphoria by Timothy Yeo. Whenever I looked back on our student exchange, I thought about how quietly Wei Da died. None of the Singaporeans knew him. We weren't even aware he was part of our tribe. The first time we heard his name was when the Swedish guys, his doormates at Apple, brought us the news. One of them had noticed the smell of death coming out from the room opposite, forced his way inside, and found Wei Da's face plastered onto the wall. That's crazy. I spooned carrots into my bowl. Olaf said it was like someone slammed his head into the wall over and over. Who does that? Sitting across me, Mei-Chi made a disgusted face. But Gerald, on cue, followed my lead. Maybe it's someone who hated him. He had to shout to make himself heard. The entire restaurant, as per Korean standards, packed their tables so close customers ate elbow to elbow, so we were bombarded from all sides with chattering, incomprehensible syllables. Only one strong enough is a Swede, I said. Or one of the Germans. They're all giants over at Apple, right? I cut a glance towards Mei-Chi, waiting for her to scold me for being so morbid. Instead, she was silent staring down intently at her ramen. She caught me looking and frowned. What? Come on, it's your turn. I'm thinking... She twirled her chopsticks for a short while before answering. I'm thinking... He killed himself. The table seemed to shrink a little, and even Gerald paused mid-bite. I ladled out more mushrooms from the hot pot and said, How come? She shook her head. It's nothing. Something was on her mind. After a few more rounds of teasing, she finally caved in and told us a short story. A few nights back, she had finished Korean class late with a few of her classmates, and they took a trip to the convenience store to bleed away their brain drain. While they were drinking and she pretended to drink, she turned her head and saw a group of Europeans on the next table over, a mix of students from the Apple and one-room dorms. What caught her eye were two skinny black-haired heads poking out from behind the brown and blonde. She faintly recognized Wei Da, the mythical Singaporean whose appearances in school numbered in the single digits. And next to him, she said, someone who looked exactly like him. Didn't know he had a twin, I said. She hesitated a bit. I don't think he does. What do you mean? They weren't twins. Didn't seem like it. As the night had worn on, she ignored her friends and watched the copies. When the Frenchman at the center told a funny story about squeaky Korean girls and everyone laughed, the Wei Da seated furthest away cracked a breathy smirk, condescendingly ironic. But the closer one burst out into a full-blown belly laugh. Although they were different laughs, they were part of the same spectrum under the same umbrella of sounds that only the person Wei Da could make. They were copies of each other, but still two different people. Mei-Chi spoke hesitantly now. She registered our bewildered faces. Like I could tell one moved slightly slower than the other. At first I thought it was a performance. I plucked some kimchi from our shared hot pot in the center and dumped it in her bowl. She flicked it back to mine. I'm not hungry, she said. 
What she really meant was that she still hadn't gotten used to the Korean spice here. Of us three, Meichi was always the one tied down by her roots. The mommy's girl, who booked her dates in eights and never missed her morning ginseng. And now, it seemed that time abroad had finally driven her loony. This poor girl needed some spice in her life. Gerald leaned forward, his face blurring in the steam. Wait, so Wei Da's copy killed him? I snapped my fingers. There's a movie about this. I think starred Andrew Garfield. There's a movie about this. I think starring Andrew Garfield. In the following nights after the incident, lying awake in bed, I would relive this moment and wish we could have continued talking about what really mattered. Unconsciously or not, I always tried my hardest not to glance at the big picture. A few hundred meters above ground, panting our lungs out at Bukansan Mountain, Gerald sat near to the edge with the wind in his face. I should have caught on then how he dangled his legs freely in the open air. My window isn't working, he said. In his room, every time he opened his window to get some fresh air, he would hear a thud, turn back, and see the window closed. He put tape around the frames to try and secure it, only to find later the strips torn apart as the windows trapped him inside again. Mei Chi, panting hard enough to have an asthma attack, she could never admit she dragged us down in these trips, demanded in staccato breaths to take a look at his room. If it was a faulty window, he must fight for his right as an apartment tenant. I, of course, volunteered to tag along, given there was a lecture that day I couldn't pass up the opportunity to miss. Gerald's apartment building, I guessed, was tiny. We had to squeeze single file through the one narrow corridor, our elbows scraping against the walls. Gerald recounted in my ear a story of how every night you could hear banging from the corner of the second floor, a German neighbor driven mad by his Asian-sized cubicle. When we finally burst into his room, it was so cramped one person, Mei Chi, was forced to sit on the bed. She looked up and said, What's this? Hanging at the foot of the bed was a circular mirror. Looks pretty ugly, I said. Poking at the bumpy black frame, grimy patterns ran along the surface of the glass and split my face into several patches. I struck a heart's pose, rubbing two thumbs together like how I saw the Koreans do it, but in the mirror, I just looked like I was holding a droopy fist. That's bad feng shui, Mei Chi said. She tried to take it off, but it seemed glued to the wall. Do you sleep with this? Oh. Gerald waved it off. I got it from a friend. To look at yourself every night, I said. Mei Chi dragged me along to hunt for a cloth to cover the mirror up, but utilities were sparse in this place. Gerald lived humbly, even considering his unassuming self. I counted only two shirts hanging on the flaking wall, and his desk lay clean of any personality. Not even the textbooks from university? Mei Chi got distracted by the window and began swinging it back and forth. Gerald watched us from his bed with a neutral expression. He fidgeted with the orange beanie on his head, the one he had bought straight from the airport. 
I kept forgetting to tell him he looked like an idiot with that pillow over his eyes. The window works fine, Meiji said. Well, I said, looks like Gerald doesn't know how to use windows. He lit up at my smirk. They never taught me in school. We went out for dinner after that, squeezing through the alleyway of shops until Meiji spotted one crowded spot and we took a chance on some unfamiliar meat on a hot plate. After it was four in the afternoon, I goaded everyone into drinks. Gerald ended up ordering so much, he got plastered before it even reached five. Clues everywhere. Details that I noticed, processed and tossed in the back of my head, too selfish to know what they meant. My last chance came when the midterms ended. As recess week approached, the faculty rented out a basement in the middle of Itaewon and invited the whole exchange community to come down for chicken and beer. Such gatherings happened rarely as the exchange students usually stayed within one of three main factions. Mainland Chinese, Asians who weren't mainland, and Westerners. I belonged to the second group had encountered the first too many times to count, so I was raring to chug down together with a third. At the party, I dragged Mei-Chi and Gerald from their food to sit with a group of white girls and boys. A blonde hunk with an earring became fascinated with Mei-Chi's docility and wouldn't leave her alone for the rest of the night. She plastered a smile over her face, cycled through nods, and tried not to look at the earring. Meanwhile, Gerald got distracted by the body-length mirror by the side of the couch. He faced away from the crowd and seemed intent on studying every single contour of his body. I faintly wondered what was wrong with him, sipped some soju, then wandered off to find the life of the party. A loud drinking song alerted me to where the cool kids sat. At the head of the basement, I recognized the Apple crew with their blue eyes and gigantic jawlines straight out of the television screen from back home. With the magical power of intoxication, I was immediately accepted into their group. One particular Frenchman, two years younger but two heads taller, ran his hand through his beard and commented how quiet we people normally were. Not insulted but pretending to be, I challenged him whether he knew any of us personally. There's this one weird dude. Stayed two doors from me at Apple. Wei Ding? Wei Da, I said. The one who was murdered. He nodded in approval at my fearlessness. Yeah? You knew? We all knew there was something wrong with him and his brother, but we never thought... His brother? I remembered what Mei Chi had told me. You mean his twin? I don't know what the fuck the two of them were. Some neighbor you are. I told you, Wei Ding was a weirdo. I mean, I thought you Asians all stayed in Wang Simni. Why would he board up with us? Do you know? Might, for no reason whatsoever, my voice adopted a flowery Australian accent. We didn't know shit about him either. He clinked my glass. Amen. Maybe he didn't like us. Sure seemed to like you guys. The Frenchman stabbed a finger at me. You know? That might be exactly why. He liked us too much. He poured me another glass. I poured him another one in return, the bottle clinking against the table. 
As I drank, the world wobbled. I squeezed my eyes shut to steady myself. Your face is red, man. Was his twin okay? I forced out. His twin. The Frenchman rolled the word around in his mouth for a while. Wait, that told you it was his twin? More like his mirror image. I thought he would laugh at that, but his face darkened. He dropped his empty glass onto the table. No way, man. That thing wasn't a person. Not a person? He was from planet Mars? Not him. It looked and talked like a person, which was why we all pretended it was one. I mean, if Weida wasn't there, maybe we wouldn't even notice. But then, both of them were there, you see? All the time, in the same room. It's not meant to be like that, man. You can't have two of you in the same place. It's wrong. Like what Mei Chi had described. A dedicated recording of yourself, given form and placed at your right side. Hearing your own words thrown back moments after you've spoken them. Your own expression stolen, reappearing on a stranger's face. The Frenchman collapsed back into the sofa, and I couldn't tell anymore who was the drunk one. The room pulsated and tuned to the throbbing of my own head. Do you think, I said, Wei Da killed himself? Can you imagine? His eyes were half closed. Living with that thing 24 hours a day? Did his twin kill him? The only answer, a quiet grunt. Loud EDM pounded from above. Shouts assaulted us from every side. When his mouth opened, I had to lean in to hear, nearly falling off my tottering, unstable toes. When time, he said, we were on the rooftop. A few of us and Weida, he had his twin with him. We were playing this drinking game, you see? When you take turns to flick the rim of the bottle cap and the winner has to down the whole shot. Well, I noticed. Whenever Weida finished his turn and it was his clone next, Weida always skipped him and passed the cap on to the next person. And when the game went anti-clockwise, his twin skipped him too. Well... This was pretty normal. We had never seen them speak to each other, which was probably some sort of strange sibling relationship. Who the fuck knew? So, we went on with the game. Someone had dimmed the lights in our cubby, rendering us nearly invisible. I imagined Mei-Chi and the rest wondering why I was taking so long, their eyes running across the multicolored room but failing to find me. Inches away... A group of Germans played beer pong, their feet treading thoughtlessly over our toes. Zin, one of our friends, she flicked the rim so hard, the old bottle cap flew off to the corner of the roof. She scrambled to get it, and we were laughing so hard at her, and she was taking a really long time, and we all got off the table to crowd around. After a while, I realized I'd left my phone on the bench, so I turned round back to get it. I got my phone, looked up, and saw a dark throwing off his copy off the roof, like I caught it in mid-motion. The copy's feet were pointing up, then its body slid straight down. Moments later, I heard the crack. Weida looked at me, still smiling like a pet dog. Like every time he saw us, I rushed past him and looked down. The road below was empty. No sign of the copy.
then the door to the roof opened and the copy came out perfectly fine. I looked up at Weida and asked him what the fuck was going on. He kept on smiling, asked me whether I was having fun, like having fun with a bottle cap game. His other stood behind him and repeated the exact same words, but slower and softer. Just enough difference so it'll let you think it wasn't a copy after all. We played another drinking game when we'd playing cards. Everything a-okay. I thought I had imagined it. I pretended it didn't happen. I knew Weida had a monster stalking him, but I continued drinking. After that, I went back to my home, and in the morning, I went to school. It's like, you know, it's not like as if I'm back home. It's not my job to deal with this shit. I couldn't make out the expression on his face anymore. But... I heard his voice crack. There were so many other things that happened, he said. So many clues. I ignored all of them. I woke up in my bed with a massive headache and faint memories of puking chicken onto the floor. What level of fool had I made of myself last night? I opened my phone and my worst fears came through. A wall of text courtesy of Mei-Chi, expressing her utter disappointment. Think about your parents, she barked through the screen. As usual, her thoughts were utterly alien to me. Whatever happened in Korea stayed here, two months into exchange and she still hadn't grasped that. I made breakfast aggressively and burnt the eggs. After I scraped the charred bits off the pan, I texted Gerald and we met up at the university cafeteria. Where's Mei-Chi? He asked. On her period, I said. Hey, let's go to Apple today to get Wei-Da's stuff. As far as I knew, Wei-Da wasn't close to anyone here, which meant no one knew whether his belongings were being sent home. The Singaporeans would be happy to handle that if I asked, but no one had asked, so everyone had avoided the subject of the dead boy so far. And I doubted Wei-Da's flaky doormates had done anything either. Which is why it was up to me, benevolent soul, to help settle my countrymen's affairs. Mei-Chi's not gonna like that, Gerald said. He had hardly eaten, his mass of tofu and rice barely touched. And, um, I'm not feeling too good right now. I noticed the eye bags under his eyes. Dude, did you figure out that window yet? Yeah. A hesitant smile crept up onto his face. Yeah, I guess. I'm sorry I can't make it today, but I think I need to rest. Catch you another time? Hold on, I said. I dragged him by the arm and brought him to the convenience store near the building entrance. They sold all sorts of consumables for every flavor of person or craving, but I skipped past the sandwiches and found a row of bottles of white cuff pills marked in big letters, BORROW. One of the Korean guys from the judo club had sworn on his life and his three-word English vocabulary that this stuff was magic. As I paid at the counter, Gerald remained brooding. I reminded him of our upcoming school trip to the goat farm in Gyeongju. A full day with Meichi and I plus a few fellow other Singaporeans. Standing atop the rolling hills, 
wind streaking past so smooth, the endless green making you want to race down with your friends yelling at your side. That half-smile rose up on his face again, and I basked in my victory. I'm sorry I can't come today, he said, clasping the plastic bag with a box of pills inside. I really am. I threw up a hand in temporary farewell. Get well soon. After I saw my friend off, I headed off to Apple, which was ten minutes away. To my surprise, it turned out smaller than I expected, perhaps only marginally wider than my own guesthouse, which was funny considering its status as a mansion amongst the exchange community. Although the black girl who answered the door didn't recognize me, she happily let me in. I ran into several others on my way upstairs, vaguely remembering some of them from the party, though either way they shook my hand with the hands of a stranger. After getting their names and immediately forgetting them after, I unentangled myself from the westerners and continued to my destination. Weida's room looked completely new. The table and bed were squared against the wall. The closet, bathroom doors, and windows remained shut. A layer of dust settled over the place, as if to finalize that no human being ever lived here. Weida's only legacy was a faint red patch on the wall where part of his head had been found. I frowned. Next to the red patch was another circular patch, this time of faded wallpaper. Some oval-shaped object had been hung in this spot until recently. I grabbed a random passerby in the corridor to question. No clue what's inside this room, the guy said. Wei Ding didn't let any of us in. Wei Da. Not even any of you? Maybe he left it with one of you guys. Singaporeans? Wei Da didn't mix with us. You kidding me? I saw him all cozied up with a Singaporean at the smoking point. They talked for hours. This was news to me. Who was this? Don't know the name. But he's a thin guy, kind of small, black hair. That's pretty much all of us. Tell me something new. Well, he was wearing an orange beanie. My skin crackled. Without another word, I spun around and quickly went back down the stairs. Gerald had known Wei Da. Not once, all this time, had my friend intended to tell me that he knew the victim at the center of this uncertainty. He had watched me pile his arms with pills and goodwill, and he had lied to my face. My heart pounded. I waited until I was out of view of Apple before I collapsed onto the pavement. Automatically, I pulled my phone out, thumb hovering near Mei Chi's number. I almost pushed the button before remembering we were supposed to be fighting. I quickly swiped her face off the screen. As I approached, I guessed, Gerald's residence, my feet slowed to a crawl. It was a moment before I realized I was petrified. A familiar figure reached the doors of eye guests, and I seized up. This was stupid. What was I afraid of? My own friend? He heard me approaching and greeted me quietly. Hello. Hi. Can we talk? Sorry. Can't right now. He marched inside without waiting for me. I hurried forward. Inside, the reception desk was empty. 
Even though it was evening, no one else was around, and the tenants remained hidden in their rooms. Then again, it was impossible to have more than two bodies at once jamming up this horribly small corridor. In silence, we stomped across the wooden floorboards. Pressed shoulder to shoulder against the building, my own breath bounced off the walls and back towards me. Had it always been this humid? Where was the airflow? I couldn't take it anymore. I heard you knew Wei Da, I blurted out. I didn't know if he heard it at first. All that filled my vision was the back of his head. That's correct, I heard him say. Why didn't you tell me? Again, the silence of footsteps. Didn't want to bother anyone, he said. Did you take anything from his room? We stopped in our tracks. One of the screen doors sectioning the corridor blocked our path. Gerald stretched out his arms and pulled the door open, very slowly, as if he was moving underwater. I tapped my feet anxiously. After an eternity, we stepped through the divider and resumed walking. A mirror, he said. Way does mirror. I remembered the horrible black frame, hanging above Gerald's bed. The one in your room? Yes, he said, and added out of nowhere, I like my room. Good thing you do, I said, because, I mean, you've been spending a lot of time there lately. I'm sick. Probably gonna get medicine later. What about the borrow pills? Borrow? What's that? The instant I realized what he had said, the entire corridor seemed to shrink before my eyes. I fought not to gasp for air. Behind, the only way out. But if I ran, if even for a moment I got stuck along the passageway, it would all be over. In front of me, the figure stopped. We reached another screen door. I may have said too much, the figure said. It turned around to face me. I put on a gormless face, like the innocent clown the world knew me as. Satisfied, it turned back and opened the screen door. The moment it stepped through, I kicked it as hard as I could. It fell onto the floor. I slammed the screen door shut, kneed the bottom corner of the door hard enough to jam it, spun round and hurtled back down the corridor. All I had to do to win was to reach the real Gerald first. But when did this passage end? Lifeless blank doors marked with the exact same parched white color, strung eternal along the endless corridor. How many rooms like this existed in the world? Boxes with four walls, just enough space only for you and yourself. Jian? Gerald stood in the corridor, bags of groceries in his hand. One look and I could already tell that this was my Gerald. No sluggish movements, no sleepy eyes only mild surprise and relief at the arrival of his friend. I grabbed him by the shoulders and yelled at him to show me the mirror. When I opened the door to his room and saw the mirror, the same fear threatened to paralyze me again. For a shameful moment, I paused in the doorway, but then I saw the reflection. Me, hunched over, angry. Gerald hiding behind my back, a helpless child. Without further hesitation, I crossed into the room, 
grabbed the mirror and placed it face down on the bed. I took off my shirt and wrapped it around the glass so that we wouldn't have to look at ourselves any longer. Gerald actually hadn't known Wei Da that well. He had first met him at the smoking point near the school pond, where the water's shiny surface offered a perfect view of the denizens looking into it. They spent a long time in a cloud of nicotine, talking about inconsequential things like accents or alcohol tolerance. Wei Da soon left, casting a glance over his shoulder, but not before asking for Gerald's address. The day Wei Da died, Gerald came home to find a small yellow package outside his door. Unwrapping the package, he had held the black-framed mirror in his hand. I knew something was wrong, Gerald said to me on the train back. But this mirror, it had a power. I had to look at it, at myself, every day, or I would go mad. Why didn't you tell me, I said, or Mei Chi? Didn't want to bother anyone, Gerald said, coding his doppelganger word for word. I'm your friend, Gerald. There are things you don't tell anyone. What happens in Korea stays in Korea, right? The train stopped and we got out at the station located near the end of Seoul, just beside the Han River that divided this province and the next. I crossed the road to the river's edge and hurled the wrapped mirror as far as it could go, watching it spin through the air before it disappeared beneath the water. But I knew from horror movies that ghosts would come back to haunt you no matter what. I didn't let my guard down. In the following weeks, I stuck to Gerald like glue, making sure he had as little reason to go back into his room as possible. I took him out to palace visits, karaoke, Seedy nightclubs in the middle of Itaewon? Always, I dragged along anybody that I knew to join so I could make whatever place we went to feel like home. I texted Mei Chi a few times, but she left me on red every time, so I guess she was still mad at me. The Westerners assured us they'd be there, and then never showed up. Instead, it was the other Singaporeans, who, when asked, were happy to help out. Eventually... Things started working. Gerald's smile grew less intense and more genuine. We were having so much fun that I completely forgot about the trip to the goat farm until the day finally arrived. I hit the snooze alarm and met Gerald at the assembly area in front of the university entrance. After settling Gerald with some of our other Singaporeans, I crossed over alone to another group because I had caught sight of a familiar face. The Frenchman, the one I had talked with during the party. We fist bumped, jostled against each other so we could flex our forearms. As we talked, I recalled our first meeting. Crouched in the dark, the Frenchman confessed over and over that he had missed something, that he had failed. That image forced itself to the front, and I hovered in mid-pose, my head spinning. I was always like that, averting my eyes from the reflections beyond. In all the times I had shared meals with her, she had hardly eaten, like Gerald. She complained a ton for other people, but never for herself. 
I hadn't heard her name in weeks. No one would have questioned where she had gone. We had all noticed, but no one had said anything. Mei Chi was like our caretaker, and you never wonder about how your caretaker's doing. Whether she's off somewhere gallivanting in the fields, or else lying still on her bed with a piece of glass. My feet carried me away from the laughter, back inside the university lobby. I headed to the exit. When I reached the narrow exit corridor, I caught sight of my smiling face reflected in the glass, and I began to run.